So my friends, welcome back to the What If Project podcast. My name is Glenn. I'm your host. You have landed on episode number 241. And today we're talking to Maria Francesca French about her new book, Safer Than the Known Way, subtitle, A Post-Christian Journey. Here's the thing. If you're involved in the conversation or the world of deconstruction, you need to get this book. Okay, first listen to the episode, then get the book. Because Maria is stepping into this conversation with a whole, a whole bag full of ideas and thoughts that nobody else is talking about. Uh, I hit page five of the book, and I was like, "Yes, like you, you, you are, you are speaking directly to my soul." Uh, she helped me put words. On so many thoughts, so many feelings that I've been having for the longest time regarding deconstruction, reconstruction, all the things. And this book really is a permission slip to go out and search for and discover a way that is safer than the known way to travel. That's all I'm going to say. Okay, you've got to listen to the episode. You've got to listen to the book. Oh, you got to read the book. I'll put the links in the show notes. Do yourself a favor. Heck, hit pause now and go to Amazon and buy the book. Have it shipped to you. It is it is so it is so good. Uh, anyway, links in the show notes. Also in the show notes, my book, uh, Rethinking Everything. Patreon if you want to support the show. Find some community. That's what Patreon is about. Uh, every tier gets the same reward. $3 a month up to whatever it is that you want to give a month. Every tier, same reward. The reward is entrance into a community of people. We have a Discord group that chats all day long. Uh, We have monthly Zoom hangouts where we hop on Zoom with coffee or whatever, and we just talk about life. Last month, actually, no, this month, so it's earlier this month, we had like 10 people on the call from Canada, US, Malaysia, Honduras, and I think UK was there as well. So many people from all over the world talking about life and faith and God and problems and highs and lows and all the different things. It was so great. And one person commented afterwards in the Discord group and said, I'm so glad I was able to be there because I genuinely feel less alone being part of this What If Project family. And so if that's something you want, Patreon is the way to do it. And here's the deal. I tell people this all the time. It's not about the money. And so if you can't swing $3 a month, but you want the community, fine, message me. I will let you in Discord anyway and invite you to all the Zoom chats because it's not about the money. It's about you feeling less alone on the journey as you discover and look for a way that is safer than the known way. What a transition. What a transition into episode number 241. That's all I got. Let's roll the tape with Maria Francesca French. Enjoy. Patience paid off, now it's go time. go time. No worries all around me, I'ma get mine. Born in the Queen City, got the four nine. Go to Green Trip, told me where the cosign. So people doubted me, that's close to me, that's their regret. When I make it, I'ma take it, all I do is rest. Remain grinding, self care, that's when I'm at my best. A little crazy, that's when I'm at a test. Fill it too. Yeah, we riding, yeah, we rolling. All the way to the ocean. Uh. I thought I told you got the sauce, yeah. I told you got the sauce. Remember, boy, got the sauce, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we riding. Yeah, we rolling. All the way to the ocean. Uh, I thought I told you got the sauce, yeah. I told you got the s
right, everybody, welcome back to the podcast. Today we're sitting down with a brand new guest. Her name is Maria Francesca French. We're going to talk about her brand new book, Safer Than the Known Way. And so, Maria, welcome to the show. I love what you're doing, and I'm excited to connect with you. Thank you so much. It's really good to be here. So I, like I said, I loved your book and I think I mentioned it to you in maybe our Instagram chatting or email, something like that. But your, your spiritual journey, although it's very different, obviously has a lot of parallels to my own. And so the, the language you're using about so many things like sucked me right in. I found myself going, (laughs) yes, (laughs) yes. Like someone who understands what's going on Mm. in my brain. So I was thinking that maybe we could begin there obviously first tell us a little bit about yourself you know basic stuff who are you what do you do that kind of thing but then maybe take us into your spiritual journey a little bit like where you were uh, where you are what got you from a to b then we'll go down some rabbit holes and see where we end up yeah (laughs) lots of (laughs) lots of rabbit holes to choose also um, as as per my book and i actually mentioned that a few times hey if you're reading this right now and if you feel like you've fallen down the rabbit hole in allison's wonderland you're reading it right so that's right (laughs) so it's perfect metaphor glad thank you um so a little bit about me um essentially i guess i can't really separate myself from my story so maybe i should start with the second part of that question which was the the faith journey piece but um, essentially, these days, I sort of call myself a post-Christian thinker and writer because mm-hmm. it is what I do, everything I do along the lines of um, writing and publishing and coaching and pathos writing and Patreon stuff. Everything is in this field of post-Christianity or some people like to call it post-theism, post-God, mm-hmm. very different from atheism, different from traditional theism. Um, and still engaging well and deeply Christianity, but just from a different orientation and from a different direction. And our gaze is diverted um, to to different goals, different values. Um, In terms of my story and sort of my faith transitions and my faith narrative, it's not an uncommon one. I grew up in New York, Italian Catholic community. So, you know, on Long Island, when you were Italian, you were Roman Catholic. It was just who you were. We were very, you know, culturally embedded in that sort of heritage and it was who you are and it's it's the community that held you. And I remember going into, you know, Catholic churches as a little girl, whether it was a small parish church or a cathedral or basilica somewhere. And it's always remember walking in with just this immense feeling of curiosity you know you mm. walk in and you could hear people whispering because you're supposed to be quiet in these churches and so quiet where you could kind of heal hear someone's heels kind of walking down the hallway you'd you know maybe hear those kneelers kind of slam against the floor you'd hear the closing door of the confessional you'd hear sort of the metallic tangling of the incense you know <laughs> just it was such a like really a sensory um experience for me but i always remember walking in and just having a very real sense that there was something in here that was bigger and better than me and it was holy and people called it god and i'm mm-hmm. here and i'm a part of it and it was like oh you know you just kind of look up and you know just this um kind of weird reverence i guess as a child mm-hmm. and by the time i was i mean i made all of my sacraments in in the catholic church and then by the time i was about 12, 13, my mom moved my sister and I to a very large evangelical charismatic church on Long Island. And this is where the not uncommon part comes in. I grew up like a lot of young evangelicals in youth group culture, you know, getting saved, having that altar experience, Jesus living in your heart, you know, Mm -hmm. God has a will for your life. You know, um, if you're that age, you're probably getting wrapped up in purity culture and true love weights campaigns and 
missions trips. And okay. if you're in public school, you're trying to do Bible club stuff and, you know, everything Evangelize. is about evangelizing right. yeah. <laughs> and telling people about Jesus. Um, and then, you know, I, I was just totally fully engaged in um, my, my Christianity, that mm -hmm. part of my life. Um, and then by the time I made it to university, when I was 18, I was fully immersed in a Pentecostal tradition. I moved to the Midwest in the US. I went to an assembly of God school, even more ministry, like everything you could think of, you know, fully engaging spiritual gifts, speaking in tongues, like prayer all day, every day, like worship services, all of that. Yeah. And then, you know, eventually I moved into onto seminary. Uh, I kind of left a lot of the charismatic stuff behind me little by little, you shed a little bit of that. Yeah. Uh, and then I very, you know, quickly became progressive evangelical and then post evangelical. And now I find myself in this space of post Christianity. And so it's been really interesting because it has been so much, you know, I'm essentially uh, a week away from my, my 40th birthday. Essentially it's been 40 years of <laughs> this um, ever, you know, depending on how you want to look at it, raveling or unraveling of this Christian narrative that I've been in. Um, but, but yeah, that's my story in a nutshell. And I, I go into it a little bit more in depth in the first chapter of my book, mm -hmm. because I want people to, well, one, I want people to know, so sort of where I'm coming from and the place from which I, I write all of this stuff about post-Christianity and present some of these ideas and invite people into the space, yeah. but also because I think people will see themselves somewhere in my story trajectory and they'll be, be able to place their own narrative and their own experience, kind of like you when you read it. Yeah. Thank you for sharing all that. It's a, uh, you, you've been, you've had, you've been in like involved in so many different worlds of yeah. Christianity, like so many different places on the spectrum that you've experienced. Mm -hmm. And so I think mm -hmm. a lot of that comes through in your book, but I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about, um, for our listeners, especially uh, what, what this idea of post God and post Christian means. Cause I feel like that, that terminology was new, honestly, for me coming into your book. I feel like it's probably new for a lot of listeners as well, because in the book you have this quote and I have it here. Here it is. Uh, While we are post God, we're not post faith. And this is mm -hmm. what it means to be post Christian. So these yeah. things that are now post <laughs> for you, uh, yeah. that that doesn't mean I think that you've left all of it behind, right? And right. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it's not like you're saying you've left God, like if you've gone full Richard Dawkins or you've left Christianity or you've left anything really, but it means that you've evolved in some way. So maybe just take us into yeah. that terminology a little bit more. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, for me, like if I was, if I was in the Richard Dawkins, you know, at Al camp, you know, the mm -hmm. whole new atheist anti-God squad. I mean, for me that I would just call a spade a spade. I would just be an atheist, but right. I'm very much not an atheist because I don't buy and trade in those currencies of existence and ontology and being an object and, you know, all of those concepts yeah. anymore. For me, those you get accused of it though, don't you? I do <laughs> all the time. And I talk about it in my book, anything from like, unorthodox to heretic to atheist to you know wolf in sheep's clothing it's it's all there um, but no nobody gets to define me or my relationship to yeah. christianity and yeah. and that's true for everyone nobody gets to define anyone's relationship to to god to christianity faith all of those things um for me post christianity well a couple of things mm -hmm. I, and i talk a little bit about language in my book and how important language is but also how it just can't possibly keep up with our changing experiences of of being human and not only with being human but like with engaging faith and mm -hmm. you know things that we claim are you know unseen realities and things that we can feel and intuit and imagine and sense mm -hmm. do you know what i mean um in in a sense the immaterial <laughs> 
Um, <laughs> and so how, how do you ask language to hold that mm -hmm. in any, you know, real way? So mm -hmm. language is always our best attempt, but our lives usually move too fast for the trajectory of, of language and, and how fast, you know, new, new metaphors can be put out there to represent some of this stuff. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, post anything is simply because we, we are right after what has just happened mm -hmm. and we can, can't quite find new language for it yet. And I talk about that in the later chapters. What's the deal with this term post, mm -hmm. you know, what's the deal with post and post-Christian and then what's the deal with Christian and post-Christian? Why are these mm -hmm. concepts so important to, to put together? But um, essentially, you know, I haven't left Christianity as you sort of just mm -hmm. imagined or guessed. Um, I've simply diverted my gaze in a different direction and mm -hmm. I've changed my orientation to it. And so traditional theism, traditional notions of God, uh, traditional ideas and understandings of how we engage God. Yes, uh, mm -hmm. that is behind me. And now I am asking new questions of how we engage that stuff for the 21st mm -hmm. century in ways that foster real and deep and ongoing transformation, both individually and communally. Um, and the question of transformation is not a new one. It's certainly not unique to me and to post-Christianity, but Usually when you're asking it in faith contexts or church contexts, people are asking it and giving very old, um, at best, 20th century answers <laughs> uh, to those questions. So we're trying to go past all of that and at the same time, get off that sliding scale spectrum of theism versus atheism, right? Because essentially we're just talking about a particular construct of God, an mm -hmm. interventionist one, a personal one, the one who lives in our hearts, the one who has agency and being and lives in the sky, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, and being post-Christian is about hopping that, that track, that ping pong match that keeps us back and forth between these um, debates that often sound like, you know, a dog chasing its tail and then you just you know you can Round never win so. yeah. yeah yeah so when you talk about like these new questions these new ways of defining god like can you give us an example of what the new questions are that you're asking because i know like a lot again a lot of our listeners are coming from that evangelical world where it's you know you know what you know it very well it's just like how mm -hmm. how you think about god is this very narrow way. So I think a lot of people who tune into this podcast are trying to expand that a little bit and wonder mm -hmm. what if there are ways of thinking about God that are different than what yeah. this tradition has given us. So for you, like what kind of questions are you asking these days about God? You know, I think that this pop culture word of deconstruction and this language that a whole demographic and psychographic of mm -hmm. people are using to describe their process for disentwining, disentangling, dismantling mm -hmm. toxic forms of religion that are controlling and manipulative and fear-based. You know, I think those are some of the right conversations to be having mm -hmm. and the right kind of questions to sort of be I guess, uh, interrogating the current mm -hmm. God that sits on high, if you will. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the new questions that we need to be asking um, not it, are not questions of the God that sits on high, with the big G in the sky, but the little G God that instead of goes high, goes low, mm -hmm. and instead of is strong, is weak. Mm -hmm. And sort of, you know, in, in true radical theology fashion gets deep downs into the roots of, you know, what is the point of the theological task in the first place? Mm -hmm. You know, the, the search and the journey of all of that is theological in and of itself, even if it doesn't have a particular destination. And not to say that it doesn't, mm -hmm. um, but destination isn't the point in this conversation. 
So we can ask questions, but the point is to ask the question, right? And yeah. not necessarily to have it answered. And the point is to expand our imaginations as far as we can when mm -hmm. it comes to any imagination for God and faith, and then going to the bounds of that imagination and then trying to go even further. Because I think I just, you know, I just mentioned the current deconstruction conversation. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you see this, you know, I just mentioned also the the binary between theism and atheism. We see this with conservative and liberal Christianity as well, this binary, you know, on the conservative side of things, you have a very wrathful, vengeful, mm -hmm. judgy God who, you know, either you need to accept this God as personal savior or you go to hell. And, you know, it's all yeah. of that, right? right? This, <laughs> yeah. this mean, this mean, <laughs> un, unsympathetic, you know, unempathetic God. And then on the other side, you know, you have this um, really kind God, you have mm -hmm. a loving God, you have an all-inclusive God who invites everyone to the table, who's feminist and womanist and anti-racist and pro-LGBTQ and for reproductive rights. And, you know, so you have, you have this much more kinder God, but it's still the same construct of God. So perhaps the imagination expanded a little bit, but it didn't expand enough because we're still dealing with, you know, again, the God on high, it's just a nicer one. And it's yeah. still a God made in our own image. And I talk a little bit about that in the book that yeah. even though we're ascribing more amiable qualities <laughs> to this more <laughs> liberal and progressive God, it's still dangerous when we make a God who looks like us, no matter how noble yeah. the attribute. Yeah, that's really good. You mentioned about how it's about asking questions without necessarily needing to have the answers. Would you say yeah. that that's is that at the heart of what deconstruction really is? Because I feel like, like you said, like deconstruction is such a buzzword these days. Yeah. I feel like everybody's using it. And now that you have a lot of the conservative pastors who are out there on Twitter and stuff like shaming deconstruction people and you have the deconstruction people like really pushing back on it. But I feel like the heart of what deconstruction is, is getting lost in the mix <laughs> of everything. Cause I feel like like nobody really understands what it is, but everybody's using the word. So would you say that like deconstruction at the heart of it, at least part of it is being willing to ask the questions, but then being able to sit with the ambiguity of not necessarily knowing the answer? Yeah, I think that's a really big part of it. And I think that's really hard for people. Mm -hmm. um, I think just human especially nature coming out general. of that world where you need especially, to have answers. Right? Yes. Yeah. And so we still want those answers. Um, we just want better ones. Like I said, yeah. we just want nicer ones. We just want bigger ones. Yep. You know, uh, there's a lot of, um, you know, the switching around of language. So instead of saying God, now maybe we say universe or we say love or, yep. you know, just, just bigger concepts, but it, it's still like a life force. You know, there's, there's still something that, um, you know, is moving that we can very clearly define. Right. Um, and still has very similar attributes to an interventionist God in terms of being omnipresent and omniscient and mm -hmm. all powerful. And, you know, um, you, you say the right words, you know, if you, um, you know, there's a lot of, of rhetoric around manifestation these days, uh, mm -hmm. you know, and, and all of that, you know, you, you say the right words, you act the right way and, and the universe will reward you by sort of giving back to you, whatever, you, you know, and, and I'm not, indicting this i'm not judging mm -hmm, it at all mm -hmm, i'm just mm -hmm. saying that we have to be very careful because we we are ascribing very similar qualities to these bigger entities mm -hmm. and sometimes it can be a little deceptive you know when when it comes to deconstruction and this whole movement and this whole term 
you know, back, back when I kind of did the whole evangelical youth group thing in the nineties and, you know, in the early two thousands, you know, if, if you had questions, if you were wondering about stuff, there was this term deconstruction was not around, like Mm -hmm. you were backsliding or, you know, there were other, the prodigal, (laughs) right. Yeah, the prodigal, exactly. (laughs) You know, but, but for me, like, you know, retrospectively speaking, I think when I moved through some of those faith transitions, I look back and said, yeah, no, that was a faith transition as opposed Mm to calling it deconstruction or something like that. Um, But I've been sitting back like the last two years and I've been involved in the conversation. It's not like I've, I've sat silent, but I've sat back and really wanted to watch and listen because, you know, people want to be heard right now. Mm -hmm. People are really hurt and they're really angry. Um, And for really good reason, a lot of people have been mistreated and used and abused by church and its hierarchy and its ideology and its doctrine. And now they're raging against it. Mm -hmm. Um, There's loss, there's grief. People are really mad Mm because their identities are being blown to bits. You know, your whole life you've you know, staked your entire spiritual narrative and story into this particular story of God, you know, what people have been peddling as God. And now that doesn't exist for you anymore, the way that it did. And now who are you outside of that? And people are having to not only rethink their gods, but rethink themselves. Um, But for me, as someone who's done, you know, a lot of work in continental philosophy and philosophical hermeneutics, and, you know, I've been around this, this word deconstruction, which is essentially a term that has been applied to literature and that has subverted French structuralism and, you know, was um, uh, purported by um, Martin Heidegger and then, you know, really kind of brought to the fore with um, Jacques Derrida and then, you know, further expounded upon and theologically appropriated by Mark Taylor and John Caputo and is now being used in radical theology a lot. So, as I'm hearing the last few years, people talk about deconstruction in this way. I'm like, well, how did they get this word? And you know, how <laughs> are they using it in this way? And that was actually part of the reason why I wanted to write the book because, mm-hmm. you know, actual deconstruction is really powerful and mm-hmm. requires a lot of bravery and a lot of courage. And in a sense, it does require us stepping out into the darkness that I would argue in my book, of course, is safer than the known way. It's safer yeah. than being a part of all that is known it's actually better to go out into this uh, abyss of um you know of chaos and darkness than, than than to stay in the certainty and the comfort of what we were um but i i did want to bring um deridian deconstruction uh to a pop culture level uh in my book because i think that there's so much hope and there's so much invitation and there's so much freedom and there's so much excitement and inspiration and imagination and like beyond the sky is the limit yeah. with with the kind of deconstruction that i talk about in in the book which is is not mine i'm yeah. essentially translating um some concepts that usually stay pretty well housed in ivory tower academic situations into hopefully the hands of pop culture where it can really be useful and hopefully very transformative and meaningful. You know, it's funny because I'm just so, I'm so exhausted from all of the debating. Yeah. You, know, you and I talked about how you, you said you've put like debating kind of on the side and I've done the same. Like, I feel like it's just, I can't, the debating and like looking for answers mm-hmm. is exhausting. Like, I feel like mm-hmm. all I ever did growing up in, you know, the evangelical private Christian school from the fourth through 12th grades. I was reading like Josh McDowell's evidence that demands a verdict when I was in the 10th grade. You know, I was like obsessed with 
answers yeah. and having yeah. been able to defend my faith. And then, same. yeah, when I got to college, seminary was the same kind of thing. And then when I began to like deconstruct and ask mm-hmm. questions, but I, I brought that same mentality with me to the other side. Like yeah. I still needed to have the answers. Cause I can remember mm-hmm. sitting here at my desk with my feeling like my faith was falling apart, like having questions yeah. about hell and the atonement and like, yeah. what do I do with this verse? What, what about this verse? What about this verse? And going on Twitter and finding like people like Brian McLaren and just asking them questions like, I'm not trying to be annoying. Can you please just answer me this question? What do I do with John 3.16 or whatever if this is not true? You know, and he was so patient and kind in answering mm-hmm. my questions. And then when I actually got to talk to him, he said to me like, there's going to come a time when you're going to get tired of asking, of trying to look for all the answers to the question. Yeah. You're going to get just comfortable with sitting in the mystery of it all. And I was like, that's never going to come for me because I always have to have <laughs> answers, you know? But now I feel like I'm in this place where I'm like, I get that because there's so many times people ask me, well, what do you think about the atonement? Or what do you think about this or that? I'm like, I don't know. I don't know. All I know is there's something that's much bigger than myself. Mm-hmm. Somehow I fit into the puzzle and I'm just grateful for every breath I get to take. And that's it. And that's kind of where I am with my life right now. Like I don't have yeah. the answers that I thought I needed. And somehow I feel like that's mm-hmm. okay. Yeah. Well, it's, it's funny that, that you talk about mystery because essentially, you know, you're talking about this concept, this little word of perhaps, which we also get from Derrida. And I talk a little bit about that in my book as well. And it's Mm -hmm. this caveat. It's this kind of this innate thing that is somehow present in, in all of, all of, you know, all things. It's this like weird self-destruct button where everything can be going you know, according to plan. And then all of a sudden there's a little hiccup that changes everything (laughs) for everyone everywhere. And perhaps, you know, (laughs) that might happen. Like, you know, maybe this will go along the way it's supposed to interconnected to all these things. And we have our understanding and it, it performs exactly the way it's supposed to, but perhaps Mm. it might be disrupted and interrupted by something that we simply cannot predict and have no precedent for and have no mold for that breaks the mold. um, And that just shatters, you know, all of our knowledge bases, any epistemology we might've had up until this point, this is this idea of perhaps, and this is actually true deconstruction. Mm. And it's really exciting and it's really powerful because it takes all the pressure off of us Mm -hmm. to have to know. And that doesn't mean we just walk around being like, oh, we don't know anything. So don't expect anything from us. But in, in, in the matters that we're talking about right now, um, coming to the table and just being open to all of life and anything that might come for us in relationship to the story that we've already been writing. And so, you know, I, I had someone ask me recently, um, I was teaching online and I, then I took some questions and someone asked me, you know, do, well, how does this apply to people who are Hindu or Muslim or Jewish or Baha'i, or, you know, they named all of these different faiths. And I said, well, um, I don't, you know, really, I, I'm working within the bounds of the meta narrative of Christianity and the New mm-hmm. Testament, and you know, all of the the radical imperatives that we see coming to us via the Gospels of you know Jesus Christ. So, mm-hmm. you know, if people were asking me how to be post their own, if someone mm-hmm. wanted to be post Islam or something like this, um, do it. But that you know, they they need to figure out their own relationship and what it means for them to be post their own religious tradition. Yeah. You know, um, if we're just gonna 
be anything out in the world, then we can divorce ourselves from Christianity. And we can say Jesus doesn't matter and it's not worth talking about, or, you know, it's just all garbage because we can't, you know, trust this historical document. And that's all this is anyway. So, you know, (laughs) Um, but if we actually still really care about what it means to associate with Jesus, if we actually still care what it means to continue to engage our Christianity, even though we're past it, then that's the post-Christian conversation. And, And that's the one I'm trying to have. And I think, I think it's one that a lot of people are interested in. So yeah, yeah. that's really good. Is it possible like to talking about like post-Christian, post-God in the mix of all of that? I feel like I'm in this place where I'm like post-Bible as well. Mm-hmm. Right. Like I feel like mm-hmm. I was, cause I, I still read my Bible. I get accused of never reading my Bible. That's what people say. You never must never read your Bible. <laughs> but I read my Bible. <laughs> you really all the don't time. know what it says, Glenn. So you right? must never read it. <laughs> you moron. Right. But I read it like I'm, a couple of times a week. I open it up and I, I read something. Yeah. I'm reading through the gospel of Mark right now. Okay. And I'm realizing that I used to bring a whole different set of questions to the text. Sure. Like yeah. 10 years ago, I would sit down with my Bible every morning with my journal. And I would ask the question of like, what does this mean for my life? What does this mean for the church? What does this mean for my theology? The way that I think about God, what is this telling me about God? But now the question I bring is, this is so interesting. Like why, why is this story still around? Like yeah. Jesus spitting in some guy's eye. <laughs> why, why is that like been around for 2000 years? Like why, why is that particular story has that stood the test of time for so long that it mm. meant so much to people for all of these years? Like, what what does that mean? And I feel like that brings up a whole different set of questions that doesn't really bring any definitive answer, mm-hmm. but I feel like it expands my imagination so much yeah. of what God could be, who Jesus could be, and what yeah. my place in the midst of all of this could be. So the Bible, very much still important to me. Yeah. But I would define myself as post Bible in a way that I don't I don't think about it anymore the way that I used to. Is sure. that am I using the am I using the terminology correctly? Oh gosh. Maybe. <laughs> I guess that's that's not really for me to decide. That's for you, I suppose. Um yeah. post Bible isn't something uh, isn't a term I've used. That's really interesting though, because in, in the same way, there are these debates on this sliding scale of, you know, atheism and theism and conservative Christian versus liberal Christian. I also think there's this spectrum of, you know, the inerrant and infallible, you know, yeah. word of God. Yeah. And it's just a historical document filled with errors and historical slip ups and factual no shows and you know, yeah. all of these things. <laughs> all the things. And so, you know, how, how do we still honor the text right, right and at the right. same time understanding that it was written beautifully by human hands having a human experience in their yeah. particular like his you know socio-historical you know time uh line or whatever um and i think that is that is how we honor scripture and that is how like this obviously matters to us again like we're not atheists, right? We're post-theists. So we're post a particular construct of God. This doesn't mean, like you quoted what I said earlier, this doesn't mean we're post-faith. It doesn't have to mean we're post-Jesus or post-caring about any of this stuff. It just means we've orientated ourselves differently to it all and to the story. So when we're dealing with the text, you know, you said you don't bring yourself to it the way you used to. And I Mm -hmm. think that's good because, you know, we do, we bring a load of presuppositions to the text. That's essentially our own baggage. You know, what our pastor might've told us in Sunday school, what our parents told us growing up, some book we read by some guy saying he thinks he knows what's happening in Mark or, you know, whatever. So, you know, and and then our own experience with the text, reading our own selves into it, um, as opposed to sort of like coming up to it and like peering in and saying, okay, like, 
I need to tread with some sense of hermeneutical humility and theological humility because I just don't know. And like this text, to at least, you know, the New Testament, this is 2000 years old. Do you know what I mean? It was written in a time and place where I will never understand and I will never know. But I have these tools that I can use to employ and I'm going to do my best to honor the text and a good way of honoring the text is allowing the text to construct something for us yeah. rather than us saying like, oh, well, um, because my pastor said this and, you know, John three sixteen, like that must mean this, because, <laughs> right. you know, like why just asking the question, like, what is this only begotten son language? Why is it important for John to talk about Jesus as God's son? What, what is happening there? Are yeah. um, there, is there a referentiality within the text? Does this mean something more than just like, the kid of God, like, yeah. do you know what I mean? And just following those, those curiosities, I think we, we honor the text. That's I mean, so there's good. lots of, there's lots of yeah. different ways to, to engage the Bible as someone who's post post-Christian and post some of this yeah. stuff. All right. You have a, you have a, a word in your book, um, called hauntology. And, yes. um, I, I did a blog post using that word a while ago and I, I sort of molded the word to fit a different kind of idea <laughs> that I was trying to work with at the time. Cause I'm like, Oh, that's yeah. a great word. And I read about it. I'm like, but I'm not using it like that. I'm using it for something different. So I made it evident in the blog post that I wasn't using it in the way that the word was meant to be used, but you use it in your book in the way that it's meant to be used. And I was wondering if you could take us into what this word means a little bit, because I think it's really interesting. I think it's going to help a lot of our, our listeners process some things. Yeah. Well, essentially it's a term, um, taken from Marxism, <laughs> from <laughs> Karl Marx, um, and, and it was, um, you know, called out by Derrida, who talked a lot about haunting and hauntology, mm -hmm. and then again, appropriated um, by theologians and philosophers like mm -hmm. Mark C. Taylor and John Caputo, mm -hmm. um, working in out of a radical theology tradition and trajectory. But essentially, it's the sense that we're haunted, we're haunted by ghosts from the past, from the present, and actually the future. And John Caputo says something really meaningful about um, the, this haunting and taunting and teasing and these whispers. Mm. And he, he basically says, you know, once you've been disrupted by this kind of haunting and this kind of ghost, you can try and go back. I mean, I'm paraphrasing. Yeah. You can try and go back to normal everyday life. You can try and pretend like you've never heard it. But yeah. the truth is, if you try to pretend that you can just go back to business as usual, you will fall into utter despair because mm -hmm. once you've been haunted, you cannot undo that reality. Your reality has changed forever. And so we have to sort of listen to these, these voices of, of these ghosts that are coming at us from, from really everywhere, um, both, both the, the, the past and, and the present. And, you know, with this idea of haunting, it's really interesting because when we think about ghosts, when you when you when you imagine yourself being spooked by something, it's just the tiniest little discomfort, right? Yeah. At first, it's just like the little prick of the spindle. You know, it's in in, in the princess in the pea. You know, she's on a hundred mattresses and she feels the pea at the bottom. Yeah. Like, do, do you know what I mean? It's it's this tiny little tear. Yeah, something's <laughs> in, not right your world as, <laughs> as you know it, but you know, it's like that pebble in your shoe. Like you're this big human and it's this tiny little pebble under your foot, but you just can't deny that yeah. this has agitated in a way that you just can't go back to the way it was before. And it's amazing because again, it, it comes from this place of, you could almost call it a still small voice. Do you mm -hmm. know what I mean? It's not this raging sea. It's not some, you know, warrior coming at you, you know, with, you know, weaponry and, you know, 
bombastic, like shouting and you know, it's, it's nothing that's in your face and Mm -hmm. it's nothing that is going to force itself on you. It's simply a matter of really being disrupted and never being, being the same again. Yeah. I think that, that, that for me is, is so, is so huge because like that idea of not, not being able to go back. Cause I I was thinking of Mm -hmm. it like that's the, the Christmas Carol story, you know, like yeah. once you're visited by the ghost yes. of Christmas past, present, future, like once you wake up from this dream or whatever it is mm-hmm. of encountering these ghosts, like you can't possibly go back to the way things were like for Scrooge yeah. to go back to the way he was before he went to sleep. Like that's, I would ruin the story, but it's, it's like unthinkable for him to be able unthinkable. to unthinkable. Yeah. And mm-hmm. so like, once you get a peek of the, like the context of the past, like mm-hmm. how you got to the present the hope of maybe what could be in the future. Like you can't possibly go back. And I often think to myself, like maybe it would be easier for me to go back to being mm. the good evangelical soldier <laughs> that I was. Like, at least <laughs> I had a lot of friends. I felt like I had a lot of answers. Everything felt pretty good. Like I yeah. I was going to be pastor at church and, you know, there's there's medical benefits that makes life a lot easier. You know, you get a house in the package with your salary that makes things yeah. easier. But like now I think like for me to go back to that, like, I feel like Scrooge. Like I can't possibly go back to the way I was mm-hmm. before mm-hmm. I fell asleep. But falling asleep, I feel like I really woke up. You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. I feel like I can't possibly mm-hmm. go back to the way things were. But I think that that yeah. that idea of hauntology uh, and these visited by these ghosts, like it's such yeah. a perfect description of this process of deconstruction because yeah. we've seen things that we can't unsee and yeah. you can't go back. Yeah. And you know, it's funny. So like back when I first started seminary and mm-hmm. my eyes were being opened from like, evangelical Pentecostal girl who simply read her Bible for devotional purposes Mm -hmm. and learned how to maybe preach a topical three-point sermon or whatever, (laughs) um, to being introduced to scholars like Tom Wright, for instance, who, you know, was and is in a lot of ways still a colossus, but, you know, the late 90s, early 2000s really was his, you know, heyday. Anyway, I don't want to get myself in trouble with, <laughs> with saying exactly. Um, but you know, he he had all of those those big academic volumes, you know, at the time. Mm-hmm. But then he started writing stuff for pop culture that was more accessible and more, you know, consumable. And mm-hmm. um, he had this book out, and I talk about it, I think, in in one of the early chapters of my book called Simply Christian. And the whole yeah. book was about why Christianity made sense. And in the beginning, he talks about um what he calls echoes of a voice voice. And he says, you know, you'll be walking along in life and you hear a whisper and you turn around really fast. And, you know, you have like almost this whiplash moment of like, you can see like kind of the, the life, the light ray or whatever, you know, something scurrying, you can't make it out. You can, you know, basically just see its shadow run around the corner Mm -hmm. and you can't even hear the whisper anymore. It's gone. The moment you heard it, it's gone. Um, and he, you know, th- this is what it's like living as a human and being a Christian in the world. Like mm. we're constantly hearing like voices and invitations of new ways to be in the world in which we live. And, yeah. you know, kind of that already not yet sense. Yeah. And I remember reading this for the first time. I, know, I was probably like maybe 2006. And I was like, yes, oh my God, this is so it. And yeah. then as time went on for me and I started, you know, dabbling in, in radical theology and then hearing this language of haunting and whispers. And, you know, Derrida talks about um, this French concept of l'avenir, which is this idea mm-hmm. of something coming to us from the future. Um, but then leaving again as soon as it's arrived and then coming back again, but then going and it's it's kind of all of this crazy stuff happening at the same time. I was just like, oh yeah, okay. Like this has been like the lifelong pursuit really 
of these whispers and these echoes of this, this voice, and I'm still pursuing it. Um, it's, it's just, um, like I said, once, once you've been awakened to some of these new realities and these new ways of seeing the world and engaging God, I mean, you could go back to the way it was before, but you can't really. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like that, I feel like it also, that word is also so good because haunting, it's like you, you have this sense that there's something going on around you that you can't quite put your finger on what it is. You can't Mm -hmm. quite see it, but like, you Mm -hmm. know, something's there. And I feel like that's the way it is with this, with this process, right? Because like Mm -hmm. you, you have this sense that something's going on. I don't know what it is that's going on, but something's unearthing inside of me. It's doing Mm -hmm. something to my life. It's doing something to my history, do something Mm -hmm. to my future. And you can't, you can't put a name on it. You can't, you can't, you can't give it an answer. You can't, you know, outline it, blueprint it. Like it's just, it's, it's there, but it's very foggy at best, but yet, you know, for certain that something's going on. I feel like it's well, a perfect yeah. term in so many ways. Yeah, absolutely. And like, it has all of these language partners. So you have mm-hmm. the haunting piece, then you have deconstruction, then you have perhaps, then you have, you know, Lavenir, um, you know, uh, Jean, speaking of Lavenir, La um, another uh, French philosopher and theologian, um, Jean-Paul Martinan, you know, he says that Lavenir signals that something is afoot, that mm. there is movement happening, even though you don't know the direction from which it comes and goes, you know, you and the moment you feel something flash past you and you turn around, it's gone, but it's already yeah. in another, you know, it's, it's yeah. that sense that it unhinges and it just disjoints. And so placing ourselves firmly, you know, on a plane of, you know, the existence of a particular kind of God construct, you know, where we know everything there is to know, we have all of these, you know, um, doctrinal and ideological understanding, systematic theology, (laughs) you know, and in a sense, confessional theology, really, because that's what radical theology subverts is confessional Mm -hmm. theology, you know, and, you know, where we think we know God, God is actually unknowable. And when we have contain God, God is actually uncontainable. And when we have yeah. named God, God is actually unnameable. And so, you know, it's, it's that apophatic tradition and a negative way of speaking about things. Um, you know, actually John Caputo calls it wounded language, mm. kind of circling back to the beginning of our conversation where I talked about how language just isn't hardly good enough <laughs> for, <laughs> for the task that it's really been charged with and the task that it's been given it's, it's wounded and it does, does the best that it can. And that's an, even a, a better reason. Another reason why we should hold this stuff fairly loosely right. because it is all being housed in language, which is broken yeah, <laughs> and it's our best it's, attempt really. That's right. I think yeah. it's important for our listeners to hear too, is that is this, this conversation has been going on for a long time. Like yeah. this is not new. The words might be becoming popular again, but it's not, yeah. it's not new. And I feel like that's something right. that a lot of people who are in this world are getting accused of is like, this is some new fad. You know, one pastor said it's like the sexy thing to do. You know, Mark Driscoll has been on Twitter lately doing I've a lot of different that, things about yeah. people deconstructing, but it's like they're they're making it seem like this is some new fad that's happening, but it's not new. This is a this is this is something. This is a a path, so to speak, that's mm-hmm. been going on for a long, mm-hmm. long time that we're just stepping into and taking part in, and Indeed. it's evolving and it's growing and it's changing. But 
it's not like it's new. <laughs> Maria French did not invent the process. No, no I, I definitely didn't. Right. Um, not, not at all. I, um, it, it's not new. Um, and, and the language is not new. Mm-hmm. Maybe how it's being used in pop culture Correct. is a little bit new. Yeah. But, you know, these cycles of like in, you always in every generation, you have a, a group of Christians and a group of evangelicals or, you know, we can say all of Christians. We don't have to limit it to just evangelicals. Um mm-hmm. But it's essentially a whole generation of people saying, you know, what the, yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, it, you know, is going on here, and yeah. and you know, we're we're not standing for this anymore, and things need to change. Yeah. So you know, it it is it is that cycle, but instead of keeping that cycle going, yeah. you know, again, essentially what I'm asking, and I think what post Christianity is asking is to hop that cycle, to hop yeah. that circle. And I talk about the language of circles and no more circles and all of that um, yeah. early in the book. But what if we hop that track? and ask other questions that let us forward and just that's off right. of that cycle, yeah, you know? That's right. That's right. So, All right. Last question for you. Um, yeah. Talk, talk to the person listening. Um, if they're on the mic today, kind of expressing their, their fear of jumping mm-hmm. over that, that line They're they're feeling that mm-hmm. um, the safest place for them is the place with the answers, because that's all they've ever known. But your book is positioning there is a safer than the known way. There is this <laughs> other way. And they're they're hesitant to kind of throw themselves out there. What are what what advice would you give them in, in the midst of that fear, that anxiety that they're feeling? They have pressure from their families, they have pressure from their friends, their church groups, mm-hmm. all the different things mm-hmm. that you and I and many people have experienced. Mm-hmm. What would be your advice to that person today? Well, gosh, uh my knee-jerk reaction to that question is time. Mm-hmm. You know, to just give yourself time, because I think one of the pitfalls of the current um, deconstruction conversation, again, one that I have a lot of sympathy and empathy for and one mm-hmm. that I have a lot of time for, yeah. because I understand how awful like the church has been to some of these people. But I think the temptation is to say, OK, we're totally done with this. Um, now we want this. Yes. And, you know, yes. there's a lot of talk now of this term reconstruction, <laughs> like how oh, do you deconstruct yes. and how do you reconstruct? <laughs> that's a whole other podcast. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. I, I just don't think that's. <laughs> I don't think that's that's the most appropriate response um, because I wish I, I, I wish I could in, in a, hit an applause button right now. Yeah, I have <laughs> clapping <laughs> to say the least. I'm like, how do I say this kindly? It's yes. not the most appropriate. Um, mm-hmm. But it is so so difficult, and I get it. I totally mm-hmm. get it because I I my whole thing about this book is I've lived to tell. It's not like I just figured this out overnight. You know, I I would have loved to have written this book when I'm. 25, but mm. I'm practically 40 and I'm yeah. putting it out now because it takes time. And the temptation is to see everything crumble. And I talk about this in a chapter I call cathedral ruins to sit in like all of the the dust and the rubble and just look around and be like, okay, what to do now? Where do I even go? Where do I, you know, reside? Where's my home? Like what is happening here? Yeah. To just sit in that and to just give yourself some space to just be I, in my book, for me, when I was going through that time, I called it for me coasting. Mm. And I just let myself theologically coast. I had no answers. Yeah. In fact, not only did I not have answers, I didn't have questions, Glenn. <laughs> I I was so, and it was at a really broken time in my life. I, yeah. I had just divorced um, my ex-husband. We were married for several years and they were unhappy. And mm. he was a great guy and I was a great girl. We're, we were just a product of like an evangelical standard of yeah. of marriage you know and i know a lot of people understand that mm-hmm. and it was just a really hard and dark time in my life and 
people were like, what is going on? Like this came out of nowhere and like what's happening with your Christianity. And, you know, it, it was just, it was so much hitting all up at once. And I just remember moving into this little studio apartment in St. Paul all by myself and just saying to myself, I don't have a question. I don't have an answer. <laughs> mm. I don't know what I think about things. Um, and I wasn't quick to say, okay, then I guess I'm just an atheist. And I also wasn't quick to play the game of like, all right, well, I'm just going to keep going to church and pretend like everything's okay. I just yeah. coasted, yeah. um, for at least a few years. And then life has a way of working itself out and opening itself up to you. I, I, you know, if you, um, are living in a way that is true to yourself mm -hmm. and you don't compromise your own sense of integrity, um, uh, a theologian that I really like, uh, Schubert Ogden, he has, um, he's essentially said that trying to define faith, he defines it as that life is worth the living of it. And for me, this is faith. Like this is it is living in a way that says it's all worth it. Like your story, everything you've been through, it matters. It's worth it. Keep yeah. going, yeah. you know, coast, be kind to yourself, give yourself time. And I talk about, you know, I talk at the end of the book about like, um, why, why the journey is valid and mm -hmm. why the journey is honorable, even if there's never a destination, even if we never arrive somewhere, yeah. um, that the, why, why the journey in and of itself is just and important and, and noble. So I would just yeah. say time, like don't fall into the temptation of trying to have it figured out. Or like I said, just a moment ago, don't even fall into the temptation of being like, oh, well, here's my new question. Maybe you don't have one. Yeah. I didn't for a that's long right. time. <laughs> um, and, and that's okay. So yeah. that's really good. Cause yeah. I had somebody a while back, maybe like a, a couple months ago, reach out and say like, I'm in this place where I'm feeling this pressure to reconstruct. And I feel like that's like the the thing that so mm -hmm. many I don't want to call them the gatekeepers but like all the, the people yeah, are kind of yeah. positioning themselves as like the the leaders in this kind of movement like you have to mm -hmm. you can't just deconstruct or there's nothing left you have to reconstruct and you have to start looking for better answers and things like that and I said to the person like I'm no I'm just on my own journey I said but mm -hmm. like from what I found because I used to be in that spot too but from what I found like sometimes you just have to sit in the rubble mm. and like let things around you be smoking and on fire and you know just get to the point where like you just just sit there I mean you know you don't you don't have to feel your journey is not somebody else's journey their journey is not your journey your journey is your journey mm -hmm. and for you you know the the peak might not be the destination it might just be taking that next step whatever that next step is going to yeah. be for you and it might not involve more questions or more answers or more bible or less bible more jesus less jesus it might just be just sitting there and just grieving what's been lost and, you know, letting yourself kind of come to be in the midst of all of that rubble. And I was like, I don't know if that makes any sense to this person. I said, but that's the only advice I have is just to, just to be you and just to not feel like you have to obey all the other voices coming in at you. Yeah. I mean, you know, that's exactly it. You know, you mentioned that you were reading Mark earlier. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I love Mark. Um, uh, Mark is, you know, out of the, the four gospels and out of the three synoptics is mm -hmm. the one that I was trained most in, in my early seminary days. <clears throat> and, you know, the, the end of Mark, um, the oldest manuscript we have of Mark only has that short ending, right. you know, very which abrupt. essentially, <laughs> yeah, very abrupt, which essentially basically says, you know, um, and and they were afraid, you yeah. know, the women who had gone to the tomb and they didn't see Jesus's body, you know, yeah. they, they didn't see Jesus laying there and they were afraid and it ends. That's it. <laughs> um, 
And, you know, I, I love that because, you know, well, for two reasons, I love it because it invites the reader in to continue on that unfinished story. Mm -hmm. But two, if the story were to just end there, (laughs) like if there isn't a better example of like the ending points of life, sometimes I don't mean like actual physical life and death, but you know, when something leaves us very abruptly and very unceremoniously, sometimes there isn't a good ending or a happy one or one that even makes sense. (laughs) You know, sometimes the story is completely unfinished and it, and it always will be. Um, But we have very little imagination for, for that sort of thing, because we just love, we love knowing and we love the certainty and the comfort of that. And, and there's no shame or blame in that. I mean, that is totally normal. Like Mm -hmm. essentially we're, we're going against the norm and, and we're subverting the norm by asking people to, you know, how you just said, you know, sit yeah. in the, the sackcloth and ashes and yeah. <laughs> watch the embers just <laughs> smoking. <flicker. rubble. laughs> <Right>. Yeah. <laughs> so, Absolutely. um, yeah. Wow. Well, Maria, we are just about out of time, but this okay. has been a lot of fun. Uh, thank you for taking the time to join me and talk about this book. Thank you for the work that you're doing. Uh, maybe we can do it again sometime. Absolutely. Thanks, Glenn. I loved our conversation. Thank you so much. Yeah. And real quick, is there anywhere that people can go online to connect with you and your work, any website, social media you want to direct us to? Yeah, absolutely. Um, People can go to mariafrancescafrench.com and any social media, my Patreon. um, You can interact with me in a variety of ways. I do a lot of theological coaching as well. So having these kinds of conversations on a one-on-one, I'm available for that through my Patreon. But yeah, books, places I've published where you could read me, where you could find me, Instagram, Facebook, all of that. It's all on mariafrancescafrench.com. Great. I'll put it in the show notes and we'll do it again soon. Perfect. Thanks, Glenn. Thank you. Wish I was dressed up fancy. Uh, wish I on a pot on some go with the rainbow. I'm by the time Clancy. Uh, wishing I had no debt. I'm Maybe rich. then I can't flex. Go ahead and run, I'ma check. Wish I had no other sand, most beating on my chest. Wishing for my people. Uh, wish I had more better leaders. Have enough to make our own land. Name my own beach and we bring our own sand. Where we live is so bland. So I'm much rich. for high on demand. Tiptoe around through and high lows. Feel like James I'm Brown, love, we go ahead and dance. Let me talk. At the end of the day, we know who's at a fault. We got our hands up, ready for a box. Undisputed, got the own lock. Champion, go ahead, call the ambulance. So we said our own ambience. Dub TTG, train to go. Let's talk, no rambling. Wishing I had something foreign. Wishing I had something foreign. Knowing that I can afford it. Knowing that I can afford it. It's real love, it's real love. But I just ignore it. It's all love, it's all love. But I just Wishing I had something foreign, wishing I had something foreign. Knowing that I can afford it, knowing that I can afford it. It's real love, it's real love, but I just ignore it. It's all love, it's all love, but I just ignore it. Wish I had red bottles on my feet, everything falls on me. Then I start clicking my heels to the ride, did this beat neat? Everyone to follow my speed. Let's close those more keys. Carolina Rose on freeze. Wishing I could fly to the keys. That will be more free. Something in my mind hit the dough. Put on my fresh fit. Uh. Turn Sir Charles, let's go. We about to go and get it. Uh. Let me talk. At the end of the day, we know who's at a fault. We got our hands up, ready for a box. Undisputed, got the own lot. Champions. Wishing I had something foreign. Wishing I had something foreign. Knowing that I can afford it, knowing that I can afford it. It's real love, it's real love.